Yeah, yeah. Theo, welcome. Hello, Theo. Oh, okay. So I'll kick us off. Um, not quite sure what to say for the first ever episode of the This Week in Geopolitics podcast. Um, sort of, we're gonna be we're gonna be doing this podcast um, every week, just talking about things that are or were in the episode of This Week in Geopolitics and stuff that the guys from Global Guessing here have picked as well. So I should probably introduce you two, actually. That's probably a good idea. So here we've got Clay uh, from Global Guessing and Andrew from Global Guessing, who's got his mic on mute at the moment. I think that's a good... Hello, thing hello. So. Cool. Yeah, right. it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Okay. And, ple- and pleasure to finally start this podcast. Yeah, yes. good, good to be on. All right. Uh, first, first thing that comes to mind is let's, ju- let's just get started. Um, so what was our first topic? Was it... I think Andrew's got the list up, so yeah, Andrew, um, you can start. So I thought the first topic uh, that we could talk about and maybe the most um, sort of pressing of, of the three that we have in store is the, the situation going on in India with respect to the coronavirus. Um, and I'm sure you know you and some of the viewers know India has you know reached record highs in terms of uh, you know COVID uh, cases and also fatalities and um, you know it really seems to be just sort of escalating um, in a bad way and so we've been looking a lot at both what the you know Indian government is doing to try and mitigate the crisis but also how other countries are responding or you know contributing to try and alleviate uh, you know the, the the public health stresses on, on India right now. So I'll let I'll let you go first, Andrew. What what are you what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, you know, India is a country that's in sort of a precarious geopolitical position in the sense that you know on both sides, um, it's got enemies in Pakistan and in China, and so um, you know whenever a country like that uh, is sort of going through crisis, it's interesting to see who steps up and what ways people step up um, and just how it affects their, their position in that respect. Um, and to see, you know, some of the countries that have, <clears throat> you know, either been vocal about, you know, supporting India and what they're going through or actually contributed in terms of uh, medical supplies and other having issues with both beds in the hospitals and also actual like oxygen supply, like medical oxygen in the hospitals, um, you know, countries that are helping on, on those fronts. I think it's pretty telling. I think, I think the UK was set to send some stuff over. I'm not entirely sure what we were supposed to be doing there, but I think we had some stuff to send over. Has the- yeah. And, and the UK announced, I think like Monday or Tuesday last week that they were going to send a bunch of stuff. I know Biden said he's going to send like a hundred million dollars worth of, um, supplies over to india although i don't think either of that's enough like they think that they're underreporting case by like 10 to 15x number yeah. so you're talking like 4 million cases a day rather than 400,000 cases a day um which is obviously apparent that you know they're having mass open burnings of dead yeah. bodies um I, I don't know if it's just in the u.s um or if uk news is doing it too but they're just showing that footage kind of no disclaimer just like a little warning graphic content thing but they're really showing you know what's what's happening over there in india right now so um i know china has recently offered to um also send uh aid and support to india which is particularly interesting given the whole sort of back and forth and you know rising tensions between the two countries that you've seen um throughout um i wonder how that'll affect sort of relations 
don't I know. mean, it's, it's obviously too soon to say. I don't know. Do you know how much China has said they're going to send? I have, I have absolutely no idea, but um, it, it has been in the news sort of in the UK as well, and people... I was listening to a sort of phone-in radio station and people were saying, like, everyone should just put their differences aside when it comes to coronavirus, um, sort of picking up on what you said about the, the sort of geopolitical rivalry. So, I don't know, that's that's well, all... To be honest with you, I don't actually know that much about the sort of COVID response in India. So, I'm resting more on you guys here to sort of splash out the information. But, yeah. Yeah, so, like, the, the, the COVID response in India was, like, historically... Um, pretty good, um, especially in, the, uh, in comparison to what was happening in, in the West, but they got the UK variant um, that came over to India, which then appears to have mutated once again, um, which made it even more infectious. Uh, and now sort of the cases kind of just skyrocketed. Um, do, do you and think... that it's sort of just... Sorry, yeah, carry yeah. on. Carry on. No, and it's just it's just gotten like really like they're they're to suit they're like running out of oxygen uh, in the same way that you know Brazil was facing oxygen shortages um, earlier this year, and I still think they are doing it now. I'm not fully up to date on the Brazilian COVID situation, but I believe both Brazil and India are doing really poorly right now. Yeah. Um, on the China front, I just saw that they agreed to set twenty five thousand oxygen concentrators. I don't know if that's another word for um ventilators or if that's like oxygen tanks themselves because they're actually like running out of oxygen i saw some u.s public health expert saying that we should be sending like we should like stop rocket tests right now because those rely on liquid oxygen to send them to india which indicates you know pretty grave shortage um of oxygen if you know one of the suggestions is let's send rocket uh liquid oxygen to another country right now um so yeah india was doing relatively well they had a quasi lockdown but not really and now with this new variant it's just kind of spiraling out of control is it is it the transmissibility that's the um the big thing for india like the the, the we, we you guys call it the uk variant we we call it the kent variant the one one so oh you call it the kent variant because it, yeah. because it came from kent so it's kind of weird for us but yeah so it's kind of it's kind of france really you could say that. <laughs> we wanna... if you want to poke some fun at the French, and yeah, um, but yeah, I think I don't know. What do you what do you sort of think the political um, reaction is? I think I saw something today about Modi. Is it Modi or Modi? I I, can't, I don't know. I've actually never. It's the latter. I think it's yeah. Modi. Um, it, it, there's sort of pressure on him and, and his response, and then obviously you talked about Brazil as well, and I think there's there's quite a lot of pre pressure on Bolsonaro as well because he. I know he's had coronavirus as well, hasn't he? But he, he he's sort of been quite um, not. I don't want to say the wrong words, but not gung ho with it. But he's been quite lax on it, I think, as well. So I don't know if that's the, if that's the case in India. I, I have no idea. Um, I probably should have read a bit more before we came on the podcast about it. But I was making my episode of this week in geopolitics. But yeah, sorry. Um, if you need to. If you need me to clarify anything I just said there, but yeah, what, what do you think about the political side of it, the pressure on the leaders? Yeah, I I read that this is sort of, I mean, uh, this is from like Western analysis. I, I haven't really read much sort of Indian uh, political commentary on this, but that it's sort of shattering Modi's uh, strongman uh, position that he was sort of developing. You know, Modi, Bolsonaro, yeah. Trump were kind of this more... Um, 
authoritative, more, um, you know, strongman sort of position. Um, Trump kind of didn't do that with the pandemic, interestingly enough, but other leaders have. Um, and this is sort of, sort of cracking the veneer is what they're saying. It's it's hard to say, you know, yeah. how that will impact over. I mean, like Boris Johnson, right? He had a horrible political fortune at one point with, you know, the UK's COVID situation. And then it turned around later on. So, I, you know, it's once you're in like the huge surge, obviously opinion's going to shift one way. Yeah. I'm not sure how to how it will impact in uh, the long term. Um, it's, it, yeah, you, you mentioned um, Johnson. I think, uh, I mean, obviously being in the UK, we're seeing quite a few things about the scandals and stuff. And you, you kind of wonder what, how much steam's left in the ship for Boris Johnson. Uh, this isn't really about India, but yeah. Uh, steam left yeah. in the ship. But well, like, don't aren't like uh, regional elections happening next yes. week or something in the UK? We've got the London mayoral election and then some sort of council elections as well. So, I I read there's like two thousand elections or something happening in the yeah. UK. It most, it'll be mostly council elections and stuff, but yeah, I don't know. But that'll be pretty telling, right? If if you know the Tories and Boris Johnson are doing well, yeah, or if. What Ken? What's his? How do you pronounce his last name? Ken Starnum or something? Oh, Keir Starmer. Yeah, Keir Starmer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. close, close. Yeah, um, to see, Starmer. you know, if, if 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 he's sort of turned around. The uh, uh, May sixth is what. Yeah. Uh, oh, that, that's actually Ollie my friend said. Ollie. He's a good friend of mine. He knows what he's talking about. Very uh, much. Will so. this podcast be available to download somewhere? Yes, this this podcast will be. Um, Ross, just quickly, um, who do you have for the mayoral race in London? Oh, like, are you following that race closely, or um, and I mean, who are the candidates? I'm a Londoner, so I, I kind of I there's get to a lot vote of in it. But yeah, there's there's quite a few. There's uh the 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 one I, I sort of comes to mind first is the joke guy. He's called Nico Milano. Yeah, that's the guy. Uh, I saw yeah. him on TikTok. I didn't know who he was. Um, He's on TikTok. He's yeah. part of Beta Squad. It's a YouTube channel. Um, yeah, based out of the UK. Beta Squad. Part, part of Beta Squad. No, trust me, he's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that. Um, but he's. I think he had five percent at one point. Like so he, he, I think he'll surprise it. people actually, because there's a lot of disaffected young people in London who who are definitely very much connected to the internet, and he's obviously a big phenomenon on on TikTok and stuff. So I think he'll he'll surprise. But um, yeah, I don't. Who's know who... Max Fosh? He's another YouTuber running for mayor, but yeah. there's like a series following. of there's a series of YouTubers oh, running for there's mayor. There's another guy who's a, who's Canadian or American called Brian Rose who's running as well. Um, Wait, an American can run for I think mayor he is. One? Yeah, I think he's running. For, I think he's American. Um, but yeah, there's there's so many. I think Sadiq Khan's going to win it. Um, so, he's the incumbent, right? The... Yeah, yeah, he's got it in the bag. If you ask me, but I I don't know. I, again, I. I don't know. This is obviously my first time streaming on YouTube, so I, I, my viewers will know I don't really talk about. Try to t stay out of politics. Got to wedge that in there somewhere. But yeah, I think that's what will happen. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, how about how about this? How how long do you guys think it'll be until a YouTuber becomes a mayor of any major city, okay. not just London? You can you can throw in New York. You can throw in maybe Chicago. You know, Paris. Berlin. I don't think it's that long. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I think you could see it in the next like five to ten years. I agree with Andrew. I, I'm just going to give the same time period, five to ten years, definitely. Yeah, it feels realistic. You know? uh, have you ever? I guess I, don't, I think I've asked you the, you guys this before, but I don't know if you have ever seen Black Mirror before. 
uh, it's like a sci-fi dystopian series and the one where the there's the episode where the sort of puppet um, come or like he's like a cartoon puppet sort of thing that stands yeah that runs through yeah and it kind of brings that to mind if you ask me um, the sort of the YouTubers running for election so that that show gets quite a few things right which is kind of scary actually but yeah definitely just getting back to the India question yeah I was going to say we should um, probably get back to it like you know so one thing that we talked about before Kanzuk was announced, like the, the cooperation between Canada and New Zealand um, and the UK, that like and potentially, Australia. and Australia, thank you, that maybe um, you know, India would be an interesting addition to that group. Yeah. Um, do you think that, you know, maybe through providing aid to India and collaborating that way, um, you know, that, that India might be brought into the fold a bit more, or at least, you know, the process might start uh, for India to become incorporated in the next few years. I'll let Clay go first on that one. And I'll give some. If Clay's got any thoughts, um, hmm. I don't know. I don't. I don't see India necessarily. I mean, India is just such a large population. Like, if you were to add up Canada, New Zealand, Australia, uh, and the UK together, they probably make up order of India's population. I don't know if that's a yeah, third. I think, I think no, you're a right. third. A third would be like four hundred million. So yeah, it's probably like a quarter or a fifth of India's population, um, which would really just make it India with some additional people um, rather than some conglomerate of pre-existing states. Um, I do sure. think though that this is like an opportunity though for closer ties or you know further strengthening ties between um, India and the West and sort of preventing a, a drift towards. China and maybe towards Asia. Um, I don't know where you come down on this, Ross. So yeah, what I would say, I, I, I sort of, I hadn't thought of what you just said. So if if India were to sort of be involved in that Kanzuk grouping, then obviously it would just be India plus sort of five, four other countries. Um, I hadn't really thought of that, but what what I would say, um, I can't remember where this sort of links to what we were saying, but India is, I think India is going to be the sort of counterweight in Asia to China in the future. Um, I think maybe not to the extent that we would like, I guess, um, in the West, but I think because of its population and it's sort of the potential for economic growth, that I think, um, and this is where I was trying to bring it in, if they were, if we were to sort of um, use India or bring India on side against China um, or, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to explain it really, but yeah, I think India... Is going to be is going to be more key to sort of countering the rise of China if you get what, if that makes sense. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it makes sense. But... Yeah, no. I mean, I mean, just given population numbers, it, it definitely makes sense, and yeah. probably just for like global stability, it, it makes sense to further align and like not like and help develop India. Just given like right like right now, India is almost certainly where if there's a variant that's going to seriously threatened vaccines it's going to come out of there right now just yeah. given the pure number of replications and just when you have just large numbers of people concentrated that's just you want even further stability um there and and better sort of practices and so you know if there's a drift from china then i think that india you you would hope that india wouldn't get passed over for maybe other countries that are smaller, but maybe in a slightly better relative position, like per capita, just because I think it's really 
just you know large population numbers are just something that even needs like further development if that makes sense yeah but do, do you think that do, do you think it could go two ways because like you say china has sort of been offering help and aid and stuff um and and the west has been doing the same thing um but there's been a lot of i think we've the uk's recently restricted travel from india to the uk uh, i think america's going to or has done the same thing recently would, would that not push india um closer to china maybe or um i don't know if obviously the chinese are sort of um this is this is just a hypothetical question but yeah if the chinese are sending over aid and and stuff and we're banning travel. How does that? How does that look for us? I guess I don't know. Just throwing the throwing the question out there for you. Um, I don't know. Like I, I think I read like some article. It might have been in Foreign Affairs recently about like, I like the Belt and Road Initiative, for instance. Like China put in a lot of money on that, and they really sort of reaped no geopolitical or very, very little geopolitical benefits for their economic statecraft relative to what they invested in, like just a, a poor return on investment. Um, it's still early in the game though, right? <laughs> I mean, but it, is it, I mean, it, it's not like the Belt and Road's like this new thing anymore, right? It's been around for, yeah, like, it was announced in like the mid 2000s. I think it got underway 2013. It might've been announced before that, but I think it started uh, proper have... 2013. Yeah. Just quickly uh, Google it. <laughs> Make sure no one's looking. But yeah, um, no. It was announced 2013. Never mind, Andrew. You're right. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I think I agree with you. I don't think it will sort of push India that sort of direction. But yeah. And I like, I, yeah, I feel like you would hope that there'd be like an understanding. Like, we're only pausing it because I think like humanitarian people. Like, there's there there's still exceptions, right? It's just. Uh, temporary for the rising cases and the potential concerning variant like the double variant they're calling it um yeah. but you know it, it depends on when that comes out um and i i really think vaccine diplomacy will be a big big thing here yeah um uh so yeah you, you talked about that and the the sort of the conditions in india being sort of perfect for new variants to develop so yeah that i think I think that will play into the the sort of restrict the travel restrictions and stuff. It's interesting how international travel is going to continue after this, let alone with India. So yeah, um, yeah, I think international. I mean, international travel probably won't go back to normal like fully across the board until yeah twenty end of twenty twenty two twenty twenty three. Like, if another variant comes out, maybe at the end of twenty twenty three. Like, I mean, like. They'll definitely be like like US EU travel will probably resume yeah. by summer. I think the EU's even said that they want to open that up. So it'll still be there. But like right now, like South America across the board, not just Brazil, probably driven by the variant in Brazil, um, is now across the board becoming really bad for COVID. So you'd imagine you, you could see in maybe like a month or two there's, you know, some restrictions on South American travel. Um what and then you... I I don't even know what's happening in South Africa and the African continent right now with COVID. Um, I saw the the president of Tanzania went missing, didn't he? And he was quite he was sort of saying that coronavirus was very um, it was quite conspiratorial about it. I think 
that that was very interesting. But that is the only thing I've I've heard um, about coronavirus. I think he had coronavirus and then he went missing, or I think he might have died actually. Now uh, I'm not sure. I think he might have died. Yeah. Um, Remember so a similar story. Yeah. That's the only thing I've heard about it from Africa, really. Um, I, I think it was much. heart complications they'd reported it or something, but it, it seemed symptomatic mm. of COVID yeah. um, um, without having to say COVID. Oh, it? because if, if, if he was bullet back, yeah, that wouldn't be a very yeah, good Yeah, it's bad luck <laughs> to have been so like, oh, yeah. COVID doesn't exist. Anymore. I mean, that, that, that almost happened to Trump too, right? The whole, oh, it's absolutely nothing. It happened and, to a pastor and, down in oh, South Oh, and to your guy as well. Yeah, yeah I mean not well. not not your guy, you know. To so, so so to sort of round off the India segment that we've done, um, mm-hmm. how, how do you think uh, this this is sort of this ties in with India? But do you think there's going to be a sort of a new inequality in the world between sort of the U.S., Canada, Europe, um, maybe Russia, China, the sort of developed countries and the lesser developed countries? Obviously, we once we've all reached herd immunity and been vaccinated and uh, particularly between the U.S., Canada, and and Europe, and Brit- I say the EU. I, f- I forget we're not in the, the the British aren't even in the EU. But um, do you think we're obviously going to have easier travel between each other? Whereas a lot of these places that perhaps rely on us um, have have large um, expat populations or whatever um, are going to be sort of locked out of that of that travel bubble. So. Yeah, uh, I like yeah to... or 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 they're going to have to you know set or they'll you know lift restrictions when they shouldn't and sort of put their own yeah population at risk. No, I think I mean that's I think that's a part of the inequality. I think the other part is just like stimulus, right? Like when the pandemic first happened, the IMF and the when the World Bank and the UN sort of got together and announced a large debt relief for the global south. Um, that gave like I think if you added up the stimulus. Global South got maybe 40% of what's being talked about, maybe 50. But now, right, the U.S. just is doing another maybe $4 trillion, $6 trillion total this year in stimulus. Um, the EU is, their economy struggling right now. It's staying sort of uh, slow, I mean, negative economic growth, so they might do more stimulus. Um, and so you'll even see further in, in inequality there because I don't, I haven't heard of sort of any talk about doing like a second round of debt relief or something else for the global south and so i think it'll that'll be like a double whammy with the lack of tourism plus the lack of stimulus so, um, so you'd say it's more economically um in terms of inequality yeah i mean just like the u.s did them i think the u.s did more stimulus probably than the rest of the world combined like that's some that's some that that's a real recipe for in, inequality globally speaking yeah Andrew, any thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think um, I would just keep an eye on India over the next, like, 12 months, even, like, six months, just because when you have, you know, conflict on one side with Pakistan, two nuclear powers, then you have conflict on the other side with China, and there have been, you know, tensions at the border, conflict over some of the, re- um, some of the uh, like, regions over there, like the Himalayas and such, and then, you know, you had COVID on top of that, plus elections are going on in India right now. Um, there's just a lot of different factors at play, and I'm not totally sure how they all sort of fit together. But um, but I think that, you know, the potential for, I mean, we talked about this with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which we'll probably get into at some point, but like this idea of, you know, when you have this many factors all, you know, sort of coming together at once, coalescing at once, the potential for one sort of spark to set something off, I think it's a lot higher 
So um, just watching closely to see to see how things progress. Yeah, but a, sort of a bonus question here for both of you. Um, I just brought to mind. What, what do you think um, about the the Myanmar situation in regards to India? Because I think India is worried that um, the sort of the new government in the in Myanmar may move towards China. Bonus question for you both there. I'm testing you on this first uh, podcast that we have. Yeah, that whole situation, I don't know enough about other than that. I find it very fascinating because Myanmar first did a split, right? They went pro-democracy as a way to get closer to the U.S. and the West. That's when the military gave a power and her name was like Ong... Uh, the, 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 the former president got kicked out during the yeah. coup. They put her in power as a way to sort of get closer to the West and get investment. And now they did the military coup and now they're getting closer to China. Yep. Um, I don't know how that you know works with India. That's a phenomenal question, and I'd love to hear what Andrew has to say about that. But I just think the whole situation is like, what was the political calculus for? Like, was it, let's first do coup, now we move closer to China to sort of stay in power? Or is it like the coup is part of the, you know, we actually don't want to align with the West, we want to align with China, which I think if that was the decision, that's sort of like really large geopolitical instead of like why would country do that then they're thinking that in this sort of next cold war china might have the upper upper hand um but in terms of india andrew um curious yeah, what no, your thoughts are it's funny when i went to china i stayed for most of my time there in the yunnan province and that actually borders myanmar it's like the closest part of china to myanmar and um i think just based on geographic like proximity um you know Myanmar sort of leaning the way of China makes sense. Um, I think it also sort of fits China's MO as, you know, we've seen uh, in the past, China's tried to get closer to the Philippines with Duterte and just a lot of the countries in that Southeast Asian region. Um, so I would not be surprised if they, uh, you know, even if they're not the uh, sort of the ones catalyzing that relationship, if they're supporting it or just allowing it to happen, I would not be surprised, um, especially because I don't think India is in a place right now to, you know, sort of do what Russia or China is doing and snap up some of the um, countries around them. They have some other things that they're dealing with. And so um, it's also somewhat of an opportunistic play on China's part um, to sort of take advantage while, while India is reeling from all the different things we've talked about so far, uh, you know, and get closer to some of those countries. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Right, I think, uh, now, before we get to the, yeah, to, oh, actually, Ross, what, what, what is your take on it? No, I was going to get us to the next section. Okay. You, you go well, then, ahead. before we get there, I just want to, um, it's not Ian. How, how do you pronounce uh, it's probably Mr. Phillips' Ian. question? Okay, Ian Phillips' question. He asks, um, what do you think will be the themes discussed uh, and the outcome of the 2021 NATO Summit? Um, Ross, I'd love to hear uh, what, what you think will... Uh, Happen at NATO 2021. I had no idea that was happening. To be honest with you, I've I've very much been focused in the the sort of the past week and the here and now. But um, the themes, obviously, it's going to be Russia. Um, very very easy one to pick off there. Perhaps even the Arctic, maybe, and uh, because of the Suez Canal. Uh, I know I like mm. to speak a lot about the Arctic, and um, you got, I spoke to you guys quite a lot about it. But it's obviously going to be a larger um it's going to have a larger share of global shipping volume as the ice cover melts 
and I, th and I think after the disaster of the Suez Canal sort of saga, uh, it will be there'll be more f attention on it. Definitely, I think those those two will definitely be the themes of it. Um, I don't know if you guys want to add anything to that. I would be yeah. thrilled if they brought up the Arctic. Um, just as you always bring it up, it's just such a like a really foolhardy thing not to pay attention to it now, given it's the potential benefits that it'll have. So um, that, that'd be great if yeah. that was a topic of conversation. Andrew, sorry, did you know interrupt? No, yeah, I was just going to say, I think, I mean, as always, with most of the multilateral conversations that go on, I think climate change is going to be a big conversation. Um, I'm sure China will come up at some point. Um, and then probably also, I feel like somewhat of a, a staple topic at these summits is, uh, you know, security, terrorism. Um, so, you know, I don't think that that's, I think it's somewhat region agnostic, but I think it's uh, something that a lot of countries in, in NATO are still still struggling with. So, um, yeah, I just add those three. Now, the real question is, will there be complaining that not everyone is spending 2% of GDP on the NATO expenditures this year? Great question. Dubious, given that uh, someone is, is out of office now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I no idea who that could be. I agree, I agree with you there. I think, yeah, maybe that will come up as well. Yeah. Uh, oh, this is... Um... Ethan S.'s question, if we would want to just jump to three and then we'll go back to two, um, a perfect segue. Ethan asks, um, what do you think Russia's endgame was for the military buildup along the Ukrainian border? Um, yeah, another good one. Uh, uh, do, do you want to go first, Andrew? You look like you're raring to go there. No, not, not raring. I think it's, um, you know, I think it's... Uh, like a question that a lot of people would like the answer to, um, because I think, you know, Russia's actions were very perplexing to a lot of people, and that's what drove a lot of the um, fears about conflict at the border. Um, some people, you know, we've talked about our friend, uh, global guessing friend Aaron Schwartzbaum, you know, saw some of the signals differently, um, but a lot of people saw what was going on in Russia as uh, very confusing. In my opinion, um, it's a... I think something that Clay and I had talked about was it was almost like a, a deterrence play in the sense of like, you know, if you build up at a similar rate to how Ukraine's building up at the border and, you know, the power level on each side is somewhat even, I think, you know, at any point during that build up conflict can be likely. But if you're showing, um, you know, much quicker build up, a lot more artillery, a lot more troops, you know, a real intention of fighting, um, and I think, you know, your adversary might be less less willing to strike first. And um, so I think the buildup went the way it did so that conflict did not break out. Um, but I don't know about you guys, if you have other thoughts. I just say I agree with that. Um, in answer to the question, it, it, in my view, it was just posturing um, straight out. Yeah, I think I read like an op-ed in the Moscow Times that was like, in some way this was both like a pushback against like NATO aggression. Um, well, how they perceive NATO aggression, I should probably frame it. Eh, NATO aggression. Um, yeah. we, are, we, are, we are being a little bit aggressive, but that's okay. Um, you know, the more they announced joint military actions between uh, NATO and Ukraine um, is definitely part of it. I, I read another op-ed that was saying that it was in part just for Putin to kind of get on the U.S.'s radar and kind of not be forgotten um, and just like 
you can't just do whatever you want with Ukraine and not expect, you know, Russia not to do anything. Um, so less like, you know, like pay attention to me like an obnoxious girlfriend and more like you can't just like ignore my feelings entirely about, you know, what <laughs> Russia perceives as his own sphere of influence um, kind of action. Um, and, you know, in some ways, Putin got what he wants. You know, Biden was the one that reached out to set up a summit, which kind of makes it seem like, you know, everyone was worried about what Russia was going to do. And they realized, oh, you know. It kind of reaffirmed that this is, in some ways, Putin's sphere of influence, um, which I would say is a victory. And on, you know, the other hand is, at least the last reports I've read, they left a lot of the, like the big heavy shit, by the border. Um, okay. Like a lot of like like the, the 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 troops left, but their stuff stayed behind. And so if they wanted to um, redeploy to the border, I think they even have um, a similarly sized. Um, joint exercise, or not joint exercise, but just a, a, a military exercise, I think for August, September, October, right around like fall this year. Um, you know, it's, you, I would say tensions aren't like, tensions are still higher in, in the Donbass re region now than they were in 2019 or 2020. Um, and so I think that's still of note. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. More, more stuff than I could, uh, ever say that I think um, and if you're interested I think Andrew what are we at for uh, we made a, a forecast at globalguessing.com on whether or not there will be 250 Ukrainian deaths in any given month between now and October um, which for context was the peak deaths on the Ukrainian side back in 2014 um, during the start of the Donbass war um, and the Crimean annexation I think we gave about a 20% likelihood that happening yeah. um but when the troop buildup was happening we had it at about 51 percent. so clearly the removing of the troops de-escalated the situation but it's still you know it tensions are still high you know sparks can happen troops are still nearby to wage war um and i as me and andrew were talking about i think last week or yeah last week so episode 10 of the global guessing weekly podcast that Putin and Russia is still in a relatively stronger position than they were in 2014 relative to the United States, meaning that like the power gap between Russia and the U.S. sort of shrunk during that period of time. Um, and so it's relatively a decent time for them to invade if they wanted to. I'm curious, Ross, uh, in answering someone else's question is, what was your take on the on the Czech Russian diplomatic crisis? Um, if you've been following that, and if you had thoughts on it, I thought it was quite. I mean, I don't know an awful lot, but it was sort of very out out of the blue, I guess. Um, I, I think the prime minister came out because because obviously they said that it, it might have been Russia that um, blew up the ammunition dump in in eastern Czech Czech Republic or Czechia, as some people call it now. In, in 2014 i think this was this i think this was happening you have to think of this in the context of what happened in in ukraine at that time as well i'm not sure if it was before or after what happened in ukraine um i can't i can't remember exactly but that's definitely the the context you have to think it in and obviously it's it's funny that that is sort of come to come up to the surface again now as tensions are increasing again so uh think about think of it as the first time it happened and um, this will link into what I'm about to say, but yeah, um, whether Russia did it or not, 
was the the sort of the questions were first being raised in 2014. I think it was after the Russians um, moved into Crimea, and now it's sort of, as I say, come back up again um, as as tensions have increased. And and the Czech Prime Minister said that he it, it, it was it, uh, I'm mincing my words here, but he basically said he doesn't know what he didn't know whether it was the Russians for certain um, in that. So um, and huh? that that sort of um, and obviously the. I did a Didn't story. they like allege that it was like the same people that did the poisoning too? Yeah, yeah. Did... So I don't know. It's a bit of a funny one, if you ask me. Um, why? Why would Russia? I don't know what strategic significance that uh, particular ammunition dump would have, or arms depot. I can't remember which one it was. Would have for for sort of the wider strategic posture of say NATO or even the Czech Republic itself and Russia. I don't really understand chaos chaos and just like creating like sort of like fog of like what's going on in the region at the time because i am going to be completely honest i did somehow not put that in context with crimea and the start of the russo-ukrainian war i mean that's that's um that's really interesting well it makes Um, it it makes a good headline doesn't it yeah um yeah, I I would imagine part of it's just like creating confusion and distraction and creating this sort of air of like, you know, what is like I would imagine if there would have at least been a an inkling within like Western intelligence agencies that Russia could have been behind that depot uh, attack, and so then maybe that drove their thinking on how to handle the Crimean crisis. Like, oh, you know, if Russia's not only trying to annex Crimea and start conflict in the Donbass. But now they're, you know, triggering munitions, explosions um, in uh, in Czech Republic. Um, we're dealing with maybe a bigger threat. So then they take a slightly more appeasement-esque approach to the situation uh, than they otherwise might have. Um, I was going to ask perhaps Andrew. one way you could have viewed it. Andrew, if you had, sorry to interrupt. Um, if you had any thoughts before I sort of give my extra take on it as well. Well, I guess I'm just wondering how, I mean, Chloe, you're sort of talking about macro perspective, Russia, all the different things going on. You know, how does any of this relate to what's going on with Navalny? Um, you know, if at all, or is that just another sort of uh, feather in Russia's cap in terms of, you know, the chaos that they're that they're sowing in the world today? Um, I read Navalny is like them just kind of bringing back the authoritarianism, to... like, forward, like, Russia kind of had this whole like facade of like postmodern authoritarianism, and now they're just like back to like we're just authoritarian. <laughs> yeah, they sort of forced their hand, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Took I don't off know. the mask. It's interesting the way that um... I just want an autobiography of those two Russian dudes. Yeah, seemingly have gone across the world, just causing chaos. I mean, they they sound like they're not great guys. Obviously, they've done a lot of horrible things, but. Must have an interesting story to tell. I would have them as a podcast guest. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, you said a lot of things I could easily comment on. Um, but I just, I just wanted to bring it back to um, the check, the check thing as well. Um, yeah, the Baltics. I think uh, uh, maybe Romania and a few other countries have expelled diplomatic staff as well. Have sort of reduced the capacity of their Russian embassies um, quite a bit as well. So I don't know if you had any thoughts on that as well. Uh, yeah. 
Chloe, feel free to take this. <laughs> nah, I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I I read the headline. That's a, that's as much as yeah. I thought about it. If I'm being honest. Can you repeat the question? I, I can give some wild takes if you want. Um, is there is there something? Yeah. Um, so basically, after the Czech um, stuff, the sort of the the recent round of Russia accusing. Are we echoing? Sorry, I've got a bit of an echo. We're good. We're good. Is it me? Okay, yeah. Um, where where was I? Yeah. So they they've expelled their diplomatic staff. I just wanted to. The, so it was Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, I think Romania have um, expelled their some of their diplomatic staff, uh, Russian diplomatic staff as well. Um, yeah, I just wanted to know your thoughts, like on that, basically. Bring it. I was trying to hark it back to the Czech yeah. stuff, but yeah. Part of my ignorance, but is is Estonia the only one out of that bunch that's a EU member? No, no, they the, all three of them. They um, all okay. Well, there that's ignorance right there. But I mean, I think that's of note, right? That they're all European Union countries that have kicked out Russian diplomatic staff. Um, they're, they're all that former. That has to mean yeah. something. Sorry, I was going to say they're all former um, Soviet block uh, Soviet republics as well. Not not block states. Sorry, but satellites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, no. As in, there were part of the Soviet Union so they were occupied by the Soviet Union if you want to call it an occupation depends on your no they were part of the brotherhood of the proletariat okay (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) I'm sure they would disagree with you Uh, but yeah I've been I've been to Riga it's a nice place in Latvia it depends who you asked I bet yeah yeah Stalin brotherhood I I can't remember what I was going to say I was going to try and tie this all back to the sort of the what are Andrew's thoughts on the uh, on the expulsion from the other countries yeah, um, I think that just in general, espionage stories that become public like this, like finding you know people who are spies or officers of different intelligence agencies from other countries, it's kind of comical because at the end of the day, I think countries in general have this tacit agreement um, where they know that like there are probably Chinese spies in you know American institutions and American spies in Chinese institutions, and like it's part of the balance of geopolitics is like you have to have these these sort of espionage channels. Um, so when I see stuff like this, I typically think it's like, uh, you know, that's sort of like the surface story and there's something else going on. And this was, you know, in response to that and not, you know, in itself a, some wild discovery. Um, but yeah, no, I think, you know, espionage is, it's part of statecraft. It's part of, uh, it's part of an, you know, an anarchic system where there's no trust, right? It's like geopolitics when I want. So, um, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's. Or, yeah, I just don't weigh the story too heavily on the surface. But there's probably something else going on. I do always find it entertaining how like they're always like really quick to like they can really quickly find like spies just to, like kick out of countries. It's like oh they did something bad yeah and we're and we're gonna kick out like forty two. It's like you found forty two that quick and then exactly. like the next week we're doing like fifty. It's like oh my god. Clearly, like they just like like yeah, we'll just let them stay and we'll just kick them out. Like whenever it 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 just seems like yeah, this is a retaliation. But spies are known quantities, oftentimes. I think I think the diplomatic staff thing and stuff is very much symbolic. It doesn't really mean anything, if you ask me. Uh, It's not it's not a big thing. I don't know if that was. uh, I'm still getting distracted here, but yeah. I, I think it's only significant when they kick out like a full embassy, like when they're like no more embassy in country. That's yeah. that's like a big deal. But if it's just like kick out a few people, I mean that's just tit for tat. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, like that's like the biggest thing you're taking away is the cost of a flight and some moving boxes. Yeah. Uh, it looks like we have a couple questions in the chat, and yeah. one of them actually gets us to the third topic for today. Um, from Ethan about the Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan conflict, which I know you want to talk about, Ross, being a, a war studies uh, specialist, geopolitics specialist. Um, so I don't know if you want to start with that first or with uh, with the other question about the election going on in Armenia. Probably, um, if, if we're keeping t uh, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan as its own segment, it's probably better to um, start on the Armenian snap election probably first. Uh, I'd ask Clay, let's, let's get Clay's uh, opinion on it first. Is that okay? Or no, no, no I have a very good opinion on this one. No, no, okay. No. Um, okay. So, do you so, want me to go first? Or yeah, you go. You go, go Andrew. Okay. Um, I mean, so my thinking is that uh, you know the election is probably a good idea. Armenia just lost to Azerbaijan, like you know, late last year, whenever um, the conflict was going on with the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, conflict and. Um, you know, my guess is after a loss like that, especially a loss where Azerbaijan was being backed by Russia, right, and they were uh, using a lot of drones, I think that was a big story during the conflict. I think, uh, you know, national morale can be somewhat low and also just from a geopolitical perspective, uh, it's not really a great look on a leader to have lost the conflict like that. Yeah. Um, so my think it's probably best uh, to, have, you know, it, it's good that they put the selection in place. I think switching up leadership um, will be good for the country domestically, but then geopolitically speaking, I think you know, it really depends on who the next leader is. Uh, you know, there's just a follow-up question, um, you know, about whether or not uh, you know the election would bring uh, Armenia closer to Russia, or closer to the West and the EU. Um, I think there's a lot of signs saying that it might, you know, they might uh, might lean towards look towards the West, especially Biden just, you know, announced that he's uh, calling the Armenian genocide a genocide. And so I think that certainly helps. Um, so my guess is, you know, Armenia probably is going to be feeling very warmly towards the EU and towards the West and will probably elect somebody that, that sort of reflects those same qualities. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll sort of weigh in as well. It, again, as a geopolitics guy, I like I love to bring it back to the macro. And what happened in 2020 was a big shift. It was a sort of an earthquake, if you will, or uh, it was a tectonic shift in of the geopolitics of that region. Uh, the the biggest loser being Armenia by far of of what happened. Uh, Turkey uh, got in has sort of won over Azerbaijan and is now influential in Azerbaijan um, and Armenia was i think pashinyan won his election um or part of his platform was very much to be a pro-western to sort of westernize and force with it within armenia um can I, correct me if i'm wrong in the chat um but yeah he, he he was very much looking to move armenia westward and i think that might be part of the at first at first my view on it was that um that the, the sort of the conflict started because um and I think, uh, again, I need to explain myself further, but um, Azerbaijan sort of wanted its land back, which is which is at the root of the conflict. But obviously the, the, the conflict is uh, plays into sort of other countries' geopolitical goals as well, mainly Russia. Um, so where, where was I? Yeah, but... Um, sorry, I'm going, I'm going off track here, but yeah. Um, the biggest loser w was Armenia, 
because they're now by, by losing that land um, that does not play well to um, the domestic political audience of Armenia if you get what I mean so the voters in Armenia you saw the you see the riots after after the war after Pashinyan um, ended the war because he knew that if if things continued as as they were that the Armenians would have uh, the Azerbaijanis would have probably uh, kicked the Armenians out of Nagorno-Karabakh and the the surrounding areas and that that, that didn't play well for Armenia but what what I would also say making another sort of another le level of complexity to it that was at first I didn't think it was that good for Russia what happened but it it really was because um by losing that land and sort of by uh, that sort of political loss by Pashinyan um pushed Armenia back into Russia um back towards Russia um when it was under Pashinyan looking to go westward uh, and obviously by by losing the land as well it drums up it's drummed up support for the sort of um oppos Pashinyan's opposition that are more pro russian so um trying to simplify what i said here but by losing by losing the war which they basically did they didn't lose outright they didn't lose the whole of nagorno karabakh um they were pushed further but uh, sort of back into the russian orbit and turkey sort of gained Azerbaijan in their orbit as well um, well and Azerbaijan also remains sort of in the Russian orbit because of the Nagorno-Karabakh war I don't know how to uh, um, whether you guys want to sort of question more to explain that uh, it's very complex but yeah um, but from from what I, so to sort of top it off uh, the conflict is still frozen which is what Russia wants because now Azerbaijan or and Armenia can't join NATO or the EU and Turkey has also won because it now has a strong ally to the east of Armenia as well in Azerbaijan not necessarily to counter Armenia but just um it's got closer it's got more influence in Azerbaijan and in, in the Caucasus as well so I don't know if you wanted to me to clarify do you, anything there I mean I'm just curious like how do you see it unfolding over like the next 3 4 years like where, like where do you think it could go from here? Oh, I, I think it will just stay the same. Um, you think it'll stay frozen? Yeah, I think there won't be much shift. The the the, the conflict's been frozen for since the sort of nineteen early nineteen nineties, because specifically because those countries can't move away from Russia towards the EU or NATO because they don't have their territorial integrity. Um, from um, studying Russia and the post-Soviet space, that's very much what I took from it. And obviously, I think with uh, it, it sort of coincide. This sort of whole thing coincide coincides with with the rise of Turkey as well, um, coming back as a regional player, and, and it that, is... that was the major shift that sort of occurred. Because, uh, sorry to keep going, but they, the 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 Russians sort of had to take into account a rising Turkey in the peace settlement and the conflict and what happened in 2020. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just. Um... I get how it could stay frozen, but like, do we think there's anything that, you know, if the Green Party in, in Germany, for instance, does really well, uh, you know, with Merkel on the way out and the CDU doing really poorly uh, in the most recent elections and the Green Party seemingly getting really good international press coverage and I believe domestic as well, um, they have a much more sort of hawkish stance when it comes to, I believe, both Russia and China. Um, you know, what if 
you finally have a Germany that's willing to actually threaten like the Nord Stream 2 for Russia's sort of antics in what is traditionally its own sphere of influence. Do you think that then might be able to create enough wiggle room if there's a like a, a different Germany at the table um, to at least allow it to start thawing, not necessarily resolving in a short period of time, but to at least make a, a change? Uh, I wouldn't say it would make that much of a difference. I mean, the the solution to the conflict lies in Germany uh, because Germany basically sort of is in control of the European Union, um, kind of. Um, if they wanted to end that conflict, the solution would be a European one, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think... I think Armenia, Azerbaijan are now firmly in the Turkish and um, Russian spheres of influence, respectively, and... Um, the EU, the EU could maybe um, try something. I, I don't know. Or the only, the only way I can think of would be if they formally split the territory, or or uh, or Armenia just gave up, basically what it has. That's the only solution, if you ask me. Uh, and okay. I don't know where where Germany would come into that, or the European Union. But yeah, they, maybe they. You've got the Minsk Minsk group at the moment, which is pretty much defunct by the look of it is ineffective um whether that would be whether the european union and germany would be the sort of new conduit of a new minx group that that's where i think they could be involved i don't know but yeah uh now before we get to the last topic i want to ross because I, I saw this in the news um what is your thinking on the recent mozambique oh, yeah. um, news with the pausing of the pausing or the indefinite pausing of the uh massive oil project maybe you can give uh, a quick summary of the background because you did a wonderful video on it and then i'd love to hear your opinions on the news from from what i've read it's absolutely devastating uh bottom line it's pretty awful for mozambique um i mean some probably some environmental activists will be very happy because there's less oil and natural gas coming out of the ground and getting burnt but th- those are the only people that sort of win from it apart from the actual insurgents who, who will win massively from that because that was one of their goals uh the, the gas projects um i think it was led by total and uh exxon were the the key to the country's development all the get all the money that would come from that from those projects is going to remain locked in the in under the seafloor now uh if total has to sus- well they have suspended their operations indefinitely force Madure, i think they called it um so yeah, that, that's that's. And they and, and and they closed it because um, insurgents were in the uh, insurgent fighting. Is that what was happening? Oh, so if you want me um, to give you a quick summary, yeah, basically, yeah, the, the insurgency is situated in in Cabo Delgado, which is the, the very most northeastern province of the country, um, and it sort of started. Um, I think it was the early early twenty tens. Uh, started rumbling a bit and there was it's very much it's it's hard to tell whether it's a local issue or whether it's a more of a international um jihadist struggle um there's not there's a very blurred line but i would say it's more um sort of along local lines and the grievances of the insurgents are with the government of mozambique rather than them being tied to is i don't know um trying not to get demonetized for this stream but yeah it, that video is demonetized because of the the references in that so but yeah um i don't know and then obviously those insurgents 
in 2017, things started to intensify and they started gaining territory, I think, after that. And rather than it just being an ins- a pure insurgency, um, sort of asymmetric, and now, now they have territory um, and they've sort of built up and built up and they took Mossimbo de Praia, which is the, one of the main cities in Cabo, de- Cabo Delgado last year, and that was all over the news. And then uh, I think it was two months ago or a month ago they seized Palma, which is the the northernmost major town in Mozambique and is also sort of a, a base for the gas works because it's right next to the, the Ravuma Basin field, the gas field offshore. Uh, they seized that town. Um, the, the, the Mozambican military said they've now taken it back, but there's not there's no journalists allowed into Mozambique to report on the conflict, so we don't really know what's happening. So they seized that town briefly. Uh, that's right next to the Afungi Peninsula, where the gas main sort of onshore gas facilities were being built or getting ready to operate. Um, and then, obviously, it got too dangerous and total... Um, evacuated all their staff and that's it now they've they've said that they can't fulfill their contract with the mozambican government so that's that's the bottom somewhere line. else where um tigre have you been uh following the tigre i mean just speaking of sort of violent conflict that's ethiopia uh, northern yep. ethiopia um um i, mean, I know the... that they've been talking about increased risk of famine right now because of the conflict um i don't know if you've been following it if you give like a quick Um, quick summary for those who in the audience might not i think the tigray people's liberation the tigrayans were were the sort of political center of ethiopia the the, the sort of the ruling group of the of the of the government before the uh, abi ahmed government my knowledge isn't very in-depth but they sort of ruled the country um and Ethiopia is a very diverse country. It has lots of different um, ethnicities and tribes and uh, different regions that all have that have that, that basically is just very different. And they, they were sort of on top, the Tigrayans, and then Abi Ahmed. I, th- I can't remember what um, particular ethnicity or group he's from, but he came to power um, on a platform of ethnic federalism, and the Tigrayans basically didn't like it, and they they weren't very happy about it and then uh, they decided that they'd had enough and they just they started a an insurgency i think they they held their own election and they basically sort of went a bit rogue and now there's a there's a uh, the the thing the, the the ethiopian government has taken back the majority of tigray's territory but there's still an insurgency going on there now basically and then sudan and ethiopia have also had a little bit of conflict over there disputed border areas as well like the Sudan, i think the sudanese or uh have sort of taken it as an opportunity to take back some farmland that, that that previously ethiopia had that is disputed between the two i'm not sure if it's the other way around it might be but yeah um yeah and then i think other parts of ethiopia are now starting to become more nas- have their own national aspirations and um I, I was speaking i think i spoke to someone on my tiktok live stream and they um, they said they they no longer consider themselves an Ethiopian person. They don't. They the the whole civil the whole conflict has sort of put people off the the government that they have at the moment. And I don't know where it will go from there. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I think I mean <clears throat> just sort of a macro comment. But 
this really does seem like the future of conflict, you know? I mean, you think about, we've talked already about what's going on with the Tigray conflict. We've talked about on past episodes, Kurdistan, Catalonia, um, Nagorno, Nagorno, how do you pronounce it? Right? Nagorno-Karabakh. Nagorno-Karabakh, yeah. Um, you know, the Western Sahara by Morocco. Like, it's just going to be a lot of these sort of small, um, you know, geographic or, uh, you know, resource-driven conflicts as opposed to larger scale um, you know, war seems like, you know, at least in the last 12 months, maybe it's recency bias or confirmation bias, but um, that's what I've been seeing. And I think it, it makes sense just given the way that non-state actors have sort of taken power in different regions and um, sort of the uh, sort of just the weird dynamics of power with some countries where maybe the governments aren't as strong and there are other groups that have to fill certain needs for the citizens. I think you tend to see uh, like power splits there. So definitely it's interesting to see all these cases at scale yeah no absolutely um yeah i f i don't i don't know whether it's to do with uh we're getting a bit deep here but like the struck the way like the the base of sort of capitalism and the base of the economy of the world is going and things are becoming more federalized and power's starting to flow downwards a bit more driven by technology and whether that has a role in that um like you say different separatist regions scotland as well um, there was even yeah. there was even um, talk of Wales, uh, Welsh in independence becoming more popular and stuff. Uh, I don't know how true that is, but uh, I saw someone talking about it on TikTok earlier. So, yeah, it's it's just everything. Too many states, too many states. People gotta. Yeah. <laughs> not. I don't want to have to. There, there. There's already too many countries for me to remember all of them. We need we need fewer countries now. <laughs> I yeah. think Russia would agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, exactly. Yeah, so let us do our thing. All of Eastern Europe belongs to us. Is, and they try to put that cheat code in and didn't work out yeah. last time. But uh, I think that's a good place to sort of segue onto the Tajik um, Kyrgyz border clashes. I don't know how much you guys know. I'll let you sort of give your two cents on it quickly. Uh, I don't know how much you know, but it's it's sort of come into the news in the last week. Why don't you give a quick uh, summary of it for um, the people who might have missed? Uh, yeah, I think the recent video. My knowledge is sort of a, not beyond a Reuters or um, Al Jazeera article at the moment, but yeah, the the so the 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 conflict itself goes back to the the the, the border drawing, the delineation or demarcation of the boundaries. Um, between the Soviet Socialist Republics, so Central Asia, you've got Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, um, I've said Uzbekistan, haven't I? There's a, there's a, I don't know if there's any more. Um, and and, and those, those countries were a part of the Soviet Union, they're former Soviet countries. And during, during the Soviet era, when the Soviets came back i don't know if they initially lost control of those regions during the, the russian civil war but they they came back and um same as nagorno karabakh they basically redrew the borders to basically mess mess with the ethnic composition of each country uh they they would draw the borders in a way that would promote ethnic conflict so rather than have a united nation of people that could confront the soviet government in moscow they would they would the the peoples of those of those of those Soviet socialist republics of those nations would be focused on each other um, in their animosity rather than the Soviet government. So that is why you have 
um, territorial border and border disputes there is because of of that sort of divide and rule <laughs> policy by the Soviet Union. And then this this week, um, there was a it was like a water facility um, on the Kyrgyz Tajik border, and something happened in regards to surveillance equipment. They said surveillance cameras on the BBC, but another article I read said surveillance equipment. So I don't know whether it's like whether it, uh, whether it's measuring water levels or something like that. Um, and this this was obviously in a disputed area. And basically, it said that that um, not not outright conflict, but like dispute between the locals is quite common. Like people throwing rocks at each other and stuff, um, because they basically d disagree over where the border lies. Uh, and as I said, the borders in those regions, you can travel through Kyrgyzstan back into J to Tajikistan, go into Uzbekistan, then be back in Kyrgyzstan again. It's very messed up. So, uh, and then on Thursday. The military sort of got involved on both sides, and uh, there was shooting. And I think thirty, uh, I think Al Jazeera reported it as over fifty people or forty-nine people were killed in those clashes. Um, I don't know if I've missed anything, but that's basically what I've read. And that'll be that'll be in my this week in geopolitics for this week, which I haven't finished yet. Sorry, guys. Um, that I, I think uh, yeah, I think um, what speaks to your earlier comment about just the lack of terror. Uh, border um, integrity and sort of like non-definitive sovereignty in that region of the world. I think that this is just like another instance of that. Um, I mean, it seems, I don't know how often like border disputes happen, but it seems like there's more of them happening now. I don't know. I'm just more paying attention to the fact that there are border conflicts than in the past. But, you know, this seems like another instance of, like, a large, deadly border conflict that's happened in recent years. Um, and I don't know if that's, like, the general drift away from, like, you know, what's been known as, like, the liberal world of order that had this sort of rule-based design around sovereignty and, like, with the UN being increasingly sidelined, et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps, like, this is um, a side effect of that. Um, I don't know. Um Andrew, what, uh, what do you feel? Yeah, I mean, some of the <clears throat> conflicts that we've talked about, the ones I mentioned, Western Sahara, some Eastern Europe, what they all have in common is that they're all in these areas where, you know, fairly recently lines have been drawn somewhat arbitrarily, um, separating out, you know, what were once um, maybe one, one country or, you know, more than one country, you know, into even smaller parts. And I think when you draw arbitrary lines, you tend to cut through ethnic groups or, you know, geographic tribes, stuff like that. And that's when you get, that's when it leads to conflict. Um, and so, I mean, this is a great case where I said, both these countries are former Soviet republics and here they are now um, having conflict over border where, uh, you know, previously that wasn't an issue because there was no border there. And so trying to negotiate the sort of ethnic tensions and uh, cultural tensions between the two countries is, it's a big job. And as Clay said, the UN has been sidelined more and more recently. So, you know, the body that would have maybe um, been tasked with, with arbitrating this sort of dispute is now, you know, viewed as pretty toothless, especially after the last four years. So um, I think also 
the perceived cost of conflict has gone down uh, over the last half decade, making it maybe a bit more attractive, you know, to try. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, the, the year is still young. We just entered May. I would not be, I'm not going to make a formal forecast, but I would not be surprised, you know, if, if we don't see a good few more border disputes um, to end up with a good amount of casualties, you know, before the end of the year. Is yeah. that a Google Earth? Was that Google Earth like the app? That's Google Earth Pro, cool. yeah. Um, I think Google I'm... Earth Pro. Yeah, dude, you gotta get That's Google Earth. That's pretty bougie. Pro. Yeah, so you can. This is the uh, this is the area that I was talking about. So this is the little enclave that um, that's controlled by. I uh, don't want to annoy anyone from these countries, but yeah, that's Tajik. That's a Tajik enclave within um, Kyrgyzstan. So Kyrgyzstan is in orange. There, uh, I can't. I don't. I haven't figured out how to get the overlay yet. We should use this more. This is pretty cool. I, I need to get this on the podcast more. But yeah, and then obviously look here as well. Look at that border. Like, wh wh who drew that? <laughs> it's just. It's look at this area here and. The little enclave there, and a bit, a bit of, I don't even know. I think that's Uzbekistan within Tajikistan, and there's another one there. Can you, do you sort of get the picture of what I was talking about? It's just, mm -hmm. it was very much drawn up to uh, divide and rule there. Uh, this is the region as a whole, so Central Asia, Turkmenistan, um, Uzbekistan. Yeah, it was just a bit of a mess, really. And then uh, just to add stuff on top, I think China claims this area here um, as well. So it makes it even more fun down in Central Asia as well. So you guys. Google Earth seems like. I'm sorry, I just haven't been on Google Earth really in like a long time. And my goodness, is it much better than it was? <laughs> I don't know if this is because it's a certain version that I have that's the secret to my channel. But yeah, I'll, I'll let you know uh, when we're off off air. But yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah, this is yeah. It's just a bit of a mess down there. I don't know if we want to tie it back to what we were saying. Um, yeah, I, I was going to ask you guys. Obviously, it's over water, and you're saying about border disputes. Um, do you think the sort of economic pressures that are happening at the moment, particularly with COVID, and um, obviously there's there's when people when there's and a, a a period of economic hardship um, pressures increase on national governments to sort of provide for their for their citizens and um, sort of I don't know provide economic security and sometimes um, that could be you you might want some resources that are in next door in your next door neighbor's territory or something. Do you think that plays into it at all? I don't know, but I, I do think the fight over water is only gonna. I feel like everyone kind of. It was like in like the early 2000s, everyone's like, water is going to be like the next big commodity. And then, I don't know, maybe everyone got distracted by like iPhones and stuff. Um, but like now like water and water rights is becoming like a huge geopolitical and economic uh, issue and area. Um, so maybe it's just like a reversion to what everyone was thinking was going to happen. Um, this might be one way of viewing it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking. I feel like, uh, I mean, it's not exactly answering your question, but you're talking about, you know, um, how do countries behave, you know, when they're under certain pressures to provide for their citizens. Um, I think, you know, one thing that can happen when a country can't provide for its citizens is, you know, citizens will look 
elsewhere to get those same resources. Um, and so, for instance, during COVID, a lot of countries had to shut down a lot of jobs and their GDPs, you know, contracted quite a bit. My guess is in those circumstances, some citizens may have looked to, um, you know, black market activity or illegal means to sort of compensate for the lost income from not having a, a job. Um, and so, you know, I feel like this was a really good year, unfortunately, for like terrorism recruiting. You know, I think a lot of people probably enlisted or became involved in some of that activity, um, you know, as a result. And so that's going to make it now more difficult for these states, you know, these governments that were already struggling now have to contend with not only, as you were mentioning, Ross, the economic impacts of COVID, but also now these social sort of knock-on effects, um, which may come on, you know, come later to, to hurt the state. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just, it'll be really, I think it's a really tricky time right now, and we'll see in like probably the next 24 months, you know, how some of the effects of, of this time have uh, manifested. It'll be very interesting to watch. Cool. I did not think about that at all. The huge recruitment drive for terrorism. It's... Yeah, no jobs. And Let's try and keep the T-word T- T- for a minimum for YouTube. So uh, it but yeah, yeah. I'll go, no, I understand what yes. you mean. Non-state Definitely. actors. Yeah. yeah. Violent non-state Violent actors. Violent non-state actors. That's more like it, guys. Like causing terror. Yeah. <laughs> Any more thoughts on, on anything we've discussed so far, then? Uh, um, just looking at the comment section to see if yeah. Yeah, there, uh, I think now that we're getting towards the end uh, if anyone in the chat has a question about what we talked about this week or just a geopolitics question in general that they'd like to ask um, I feel like now is, yep. yeah, I was, was going to say are we going into our freestyle section where we yeah. well, I guess the questions. last thing I'd say is that you know we were talking about the Belt and Road Initiative and also about this border conflict between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Um, I'm, if I recall correctly, I'm pretty sure that at least one of the Belt and Road sort of paths at a high level goes through that area of Central Asia. Um, yeah. And so I'd be interested to see if uh, China is sort of silently backing one side to try and lock down that sort of pathway into into Europe. Uh, so I'd be looking for you know reports that might come out about whether it's, you know, Chinese artillery or Chinese supplies going to one side of the conflict or, um, you know, Chinese manufactured drones being used by one side, something like that um, might might be a telltale sign of what's going on under the surface. You would think that they would, right? Like, that's just smart geopolitics. Yeah, you can't be sort of passive when you have a conflict in such a key area in your grand strategy. Like, you have to probably... Well, it depends who you would ask, Andrew. Some people would say, of course. True. Shall, shall I um try to start taking some questions from TikTok as well? And uh, we've got one question yeah. so far, haven't we? Oh, I didn't even know we were live on TikTok. No, no, we're not. Well, I was just going to start, oh. so I'll, I'll press the button now. We'll go three. Well, two, we one. have one right now from Ace Fiasco. Will Ethiopia disintegrate into ethnic enclaves? I would probably say, and I'm probably the least informed on the subject, that like officially no. That like any state just dissolving into ethnic enclaves would just I don't think that's in any country's best interest, any of the major countries' best interest to allow that to even establish itself as a precedent. Now, informally and like in practice, will that happen? I think that's probably a, a much more likely outcome out of the two. Um Yeah. I don't know where you guys are are feeling. 
will 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 Ethiopia disintegrate into ethnic enclaves? That is a good question. It, I, I, I would I want to say it, it would depend on the sort of geopolitics of stuff whether certain countries would allow that to happen. I don't know. Um, would the U.S. let that happen? Uh, would the Africa the African Union let that happen? Probably not. That is a, that is a good sort of um, vector to look at there. Um, probably probably the African Union would would get involved. The UN would get involved. So uh, I want to say no to that one. Yeah, I think that region is way too. I mean, one you know, I'm pretty sure I forget what year it was. Maybe 2017, 2018, maybe a bit before. But South Sudan just became a country, you know, and so. Um, for Sudan and South Sudan recently split and so having that sort of analog bordering you would at least make me think that if things got that bad they'd be able to find sort of a more um, procedural solution to some of the you know tensions going on in Ethiopia um, and then also I mean they're right by that that strait that connects the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden it's like a big bottleneck for shipping similar to the Suez Canal and the Strait of Hormuz and so and that's where Djibouti is, where China has the military base. So I doubt that they would let a country that big, that close to such a key sort of choke point for international trade um, disintegrate, as was asked. So I think I'm in a similar camp to, to Ross and Clay, and I don't think it'll happen. But um, I'm also not sure what safety nets are in place to try and stop that if it starts. Um, you know, I don't know if we'll see any of the blue helmets coming in from the UN this time around, but, um, you know, Hopefully, there's some some protocol sanctions. Yes, we all know <laughs> the solution to everything. <laughs> As a country disintegrates, sanctions. Um, yeah. What do you guys think of RG's question? What do you think about the future of the EU? Um, the future of the EU—that's a great question. Um, I mean, Ross, you're in the UK. You know, we're in the EU. Maybe have a better sense of on the ground sentiment Not regarding anymore. the EU. <laughs> Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, I mean, do you think that things stay intact or do you think people follow the UK model, so to speak? The the events of the next year will be very important, I think. Um and how how the the economy, um the European economy, how sort of the global economy um how that plays out in the next year. Um I don't know if it'll be very good in the next year. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I don't think I think there's probably going to be a recession at some point soon, and obviously um, economic woes play into that, um, into the sort of the the level of euroscepticism in in different countries in the EU. Thinking of Italy here, um, Greece, Spain. I don't think Greece or Spain will leave the EU, but Italy is definitely a country to to sort of look at here. You think? Um... A global recession or an EU recession? Just a, a global one. I, I think we're overdue a recession already, are we not? I think. Um, did, didn't we not just have one? Yeah, but as in, yeah. Well, I suppose we did, didn't we? It was probably the it was the yeah, worst we, recession we ever, just... but or one of the worst recessions in the in history. It, it was the worst in terms of drop. Yeah, uh, I think um, people people are talking about inflation as well. Um, I just don't know. As I say, I don't know if it will happen, but I think that will play into it very much. If if the economy uh, starts to tank, I think then Euroscepticism will rise, um, and then obviously that has an impact on the future of the EU. The future of the EU, for me at the moment, depends on Italy um, completely. I think um, the future yeah. of the EU is up to Italy. 
yeah, if Italy, if Italy, that they've got this sort of caretaker government in there at the moment with um, Mario Draghi, who became uh, PM recently. I think Italy changes government you know, every six months at the moment. <laughs> it's pretty unstable, uh, unstable. It always has been, but yeah, if if there's elections in Italy again, I think the the populists um, side, so the um, the brothers of Italy and um, what was Matteo Lega um, will most likely win. It, it was looking that way um, when they had the sort of the political crisis there before. But those are Eurosceptic parties, and if they win, um, and Italy leaves or has a referendum and leaves, uh, that that will be pretty devastating for the EU. If another country leaves, I think it's even it's even more precarious. But I don't know. Uh, I don't know if Italy's going to leave now they have that like joint debt agreement. I was about to like ask if that, that sort of like holds them out. better together. I think maybe the more likely is that they kind of just like leave it at that, and it's not like further steps of like there's not like another round of stimulus which the EU arguably needs right now. Um, I could see shared debt though making some countries say like you know similar to Trump, I want to get out of these different uh, multilateral agreements because you know we're paying a disproportionate amount to these other countries or why should I be burdened with some other countries debt because their domestic politics are you know uh, more poorly uh, managed than ours like that's could probably Germany it? and France right though that would have because they're in the ones that were like lending out money out of right like right. Italy is not the one that's like <clears throat> we we put in more than we took out of this deal right they're could you not, see Germany or France leaving if Le Pen were to win or if you know right elections next year in France. or did, did if you, the far right did you guys, um, sorry to interrupt did you see the letter story in France of the military um, generals and um, serving soldiers serving soldiers published an open letter in a magazine saying that they thought France would descend into civil war um, due to really? sort of... Yeah, I saw that. I just didn't know the context of it. Yeah, yeah civil war across what divides? Uh, or like along what lines? Well, they, they sort of... Uh, Nationalistic? Looking at the, the TikTok and the YouTube uh, algorithms here. But yeah, it was, it was basically they said they thought that um, there was an Islamic um, separatist separatist uh, element and they thought that that was probably going to um, result in chaos is what they said I think. So these are conceivably not to paint with a broad brush but Le Pen oriented military yeah, yeah, officers. Yeah. Well the, 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 the media sort of tied it in with Le Pen and Le Pen came out and said that she uh, she doesn't she agrees with their sentiments but she doesn't agree with what they said she said that the solution is is in politics and that she thought that politics was the way to resolve these things um not through military uh well it was it was called a coup by some um experts and i think some officials maybe so hmm. and yeah yeah i mean i i think future of the eu it's gonna be one do they fall into a recession vis-a-vis -vis the us and china right now Number two, does like vaccine diplomacy just break their quote unquote united front when it comes to COVID? So stimulus, vaccinations, and then the risk of far right nationalism sort of taking over this idea of the EU. And but you could also see, you know, shared debt if um 
the more pro-EU sides, you know, get put back into power in Germany and France, you know, stay in power rather, that you could see, you know, this finally being <laughs> fine. Yes, th this is the time when the EU finally comes together and, you know, starts taking further steps towards integration. Um, it's not the same, but <clears throat> when I think about the EU question, it makes me also think about what's going on in the Middle East with Palestine and just like what seems to be this shift in mindset for countries where like they're worried more about their own well-being than, you know, the, some sense of community um, or, you know, making sacrifices just for the sake of, uh, you know, cooperation. Um, so, I mean, like I said, it's very different sort of backdrop, very different countries. So I don't think it's necessarily diagnostic of much, but I think um, it'll be interesting to see if, you know, countries elsewhere also adopt that mindset of, you know, um, looking out for themselves, turning inward. Wouldn't that lead to a sort of like more EU, just given that like, if the EU were actually a state, it'd be an absolute unit? <clears throat> Do you think that the EU could, is, is homogenous enough, that there's enough of a European identity that could bind, you know, all those countries? Uh, maybe as deep as what's holding the U.S. together at this point? An interesting question, you know? I think in a lot of ways, yeah, there's some... some I mean, I think language is probably their biggest barrier. Language and different degrees of snobbiness of their cultural <laughs> superiority. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's possible. We, people have talked about the EU, you know, being in effect a sort of super state. Um, whether or not that could actually ever happen, I think, is, you know, to be decided. And if that were to happen, then we definitely need to take Canada and the UK and Australia and New Zealand. You know, we got to... Got to balance. Got to balance. <laughs> yeah, you're saying about um, integration stuff. I don't think there's the appetite for further... European integration necessarily um, in some countries, Poland, Hungary, what about like economic integrate, like just, economic debt integration. No, no, political integration. Oh. Um, I think the the EU is very much headed in the direction of a a quasi state um, thing, sort of structure. Well, it is basically is it a state? Um, is the debate at the moment? Um, I don't know. But yeah, I don't think there's the appetite. The the sort of the central European um, countries have started to say you but there's been a sort of dispute over my taking in of migrants and stuff like that and then it's uh, there's it's in they, i think poland's been in hot water because of its stances on that and then that the, there was talk of ki of kicking them out of the eu but <coughs> obviously hungary and poland are sort of best buds so you, you need a unanimous vote to um, do anything about one of these countries doing a certain thing so if if Poland does something bad, Hungary will just say, "Oh well, we love you, so uh, we're not going to vote." We're not, we're... Yeah, that seems like a that seems like an oversight, huh? You can just yeah. get two buddies and just yeah, do whatever the hell they want. Yeah, that's it. Um, and I was thinking, oh. it makes me think of the talks this week about Cyprus re uh, reunification. Those failed, and like um, Turkey joining the EU has been constantly vetoed by Cyprus <coughs> because they can't. Uh, Turkey wants to join the EU and any uh, any attempt at further integration of Turkey into the EU Cyprus just say no thank you because they have the conflict with Northern Cyprus who are aligned with Turkey um, so yeah that's a big structural problem of the EU and part of the reason why some people say oh it's ineffective 
because you, you have to get a unanimous, practically unanimous vote on stuff. Um, yeah. So, I don't know if you have anything to add. I think it's pretty comprehensive. Yeah. No, just other than that, when I was growing up, I was told there were a lot fewer conflicts going on in the world and uh, are definitely still going on. I, I was not, un, un, until I saw the Cyprus reunification news, even aware of the Turkish-Cyprus conflict. I should so have published an ignorant American. That's also <laughs> a, a very, a very real possibility. <laughs> yeah, when you when you're over in the UK, or maybe you're, I don't know, maybe it's the American news or whatever. You just don't see stuff. That's what people say to me. I mean, that, that's probably yeah. So, the US news, Mediterranean stuff is interesting. So yeah, and it's like a nice climate. That's water. where like. That's where, like, most like the media people probably vacation anyway. Think that they would the learn something every once in a while, but no. They have great food out there as well. The Mediterranean diet, <laughs> big thing. Healthiest in the world, supposedly. Yeah, lots of fish. Oh, dude, food in Greece. I mean, Greek food is probably my favorite. A nice chicken souvlaki. Hmm. Anyway, uh, someone in the TikTok comment section said. I'm from Colombia. I just wanted to know if you have any thoughts or knowledge about what's happening. I'm going to bounce this one over to you guys because you're geographically closer. That's the only reason I'm going to say that. So, any ideas? Um, Something related to COVID. So, the question is Colombia. Yeah, is it a COVID question or just Colombia in general? Just Colombia. I think there was the Venezuelan Colombian border clashes recently but i don't and then also... oh there's protests right now tax reform protests oh, okay yeah it's the only thing I've uh, five of. civilians and one police officer dies in columbia protests uh reuters columbia presidents withdraws tax reform after protests what were these tax reforms npr against plan to raise taxes in pandemic react economy looks like they're going to add sales tax to utilities and some foods I think so what it seems like and you know we saw this a bit in the portugal election that we talked about but i think uh colombia's president was trying to put some more austere fiscal policies in place to try and stabilize colombia's economy um i.e just raising taxes and making the country's pnl look a bit better look a bit healthier um in response people were not happy understandably because you know and this happened in portugal as well when you're trying to fix a country's P&L, it often means, you know, whether it's raising wages, cutting jobs, increasing taxes, things that aren't exactly uh, supposed or aren't going to make citizens happy. Um, so it seems just... like, yeah, it seems like the protests were enough to uh, to stop that legislation from going through. It seems like he's going to go back and make some concessions and try and uh, get something passed. But um I mean, that's interesting because if if he's not able to pass something substantive enough, then ostensibly Colombia is going to be in really bad economic shape during COVID, you know, and so I don't know what that means for the country's economic future, but it can't be, can't be good. Yeah. Uh, I have no yeah, idea. I mean, yeah, it seems like I'm guessing he was trying to raise taxes to fund something to, you know, actually boost the economy out, but it's hard to fund things during the downturn. I don't, you know, this is in theory where the IMF is probably supposed to come in. Um, who even heard, who's even, I think like the IMF made news in March and April of last year and then just silent throughout this pandemic. Now, that could just be the news that I consume is why I'm not following up on it. But yeah, 
Not too much. The, 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 the person in uh, TikTok said, um, gas, basic needs, and all public pensions and retirement funds will be privatised. Um, so, I don't know what, what, how that plays into things. I, I think South America has sort of a... I don't know what, I don't want to generalise, but there's more of a left leftist sort of bent in South America. Um, obviously, in Bolivia, you had the the whole Morales Morales saga, um, and he had to flee the country, and they had the right wing government come in, uh, supposedly backed by the US and stuff. Um, so uh, perhaps that's why there's protests going on. Uh, I think Colombia has its has a civil war, doesn't it, between the sort of the FARC guerrillas who are is it still going on? I think there's some sort of yeah. I don't know what's happening. Whether there was a ceasefire, but yeah, those those are like com- they're communist or <laughs> socialist guerrillas. Uh, I think they had to compromise with the government. So, oh, so um, Colombia. I think. Oh no, it's still going on in the YouTube. Um, oh yeah, there's another question. Yeah, there's one saying there's one asking Ross to make a video about what's going on in Afghanistan and with the JCPOA. Um, and we can touch on that a bit if you'd like. Uh, I don't you know. know. I think I, I saw. I don't know if I'll be I able mean, to make a video on that. I've got I've got so many videos on my schedule, so I'll give it. We a have try. some content on global gassing re, uh, regarding the troop withdrawal, U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, as well as um, you know the likelihood that uh, we're going to get back into the JCPOA um, and that those sanctions from the JCPOA are going to be um, removed, and so we can you know, put those in the chat or something. Um, there's one other one about... Uh, oh, well, someone asked, uh, what would be the regional implications of a U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? Will Russia, China fill the void? Um, I don't think Russia, China problem. really wants to... I really know, like, after, you know, you know, both at destroying the Soviet Union and severely crippling the U.S., if um, someone really wants to go back into Afghanistan... Um, it does seem like so. I mean, like we've talked about this, like contrast between the U.S. and China when it comes to international intervention, where the U.S. seems to often be like the military power going in with troops, and China seems to be the country coming in with economic development as opposed to force. Um, so I could potentially see, you know, the U.S. pulling out. They've, you know, been warring in that region for so long. And then China comes in with a completely different bent and wants to supply them with, you know, development, build schools, infrastructure. I could see that happening. I could also see it not being a state at all and going back to the whole violent non-state actor rise. You know, there'll be a power void and, uh, you know, maybe the Taliban goes back on some of its uh, promises that they made to the U.S., you know, to try and get to this point and you see some issues. What do you guys think of uh, Biden's uh, "If you respect human rights, we'll take off sanctions" play? Do you think that's going to work? So who was that uh, Biden? 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 When basically announced the Taliban that they would lift sanctions if they didn't regress on women's rights and some other criteria. Do you think that'll be effective? I want to say no. I don't think the Taliban will take that. If you ask me, Andrew, what do you think? Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. I I just think the Taliban is so interesting as an organization. Just like uh, whenever you're able to span sort of having actual political influence within like a structured government, but also 
um, you know, have the non-state actors sort of paramilitary T-word role. I think it's, um, you have a lot of power, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a quite potent uh, line to straddle. And my guess is that when the U.S. leaves, they'll come back into power um, in, a, in a bigger way than they have, you know, for the last decade or so. Yeah. Well, what do you, um, so I was going to sort of weigh in as well. Um, implications of troop withdrawals from Afghanistan. Um, I think the the main thing will be making sure that it doesn't go back into a sort of lawless state that it was in sort of prior to 2001. Like it was a bit of a mess. Um, obviously, that will create regional trouble. And I think I don't know how many contractors from the US are now in Afghanistan. And whether so they're going to stay behind. I think it was like seven just 000. the troops. Yeah. Yeah, just yeah. the troops. <laughs> so, um, well, so there's a there. They'll privatize the war, basically. Um, I don't know how that will impact things. Yeah, I just know I won't be going there anytime soon. That's all. Shall we take one more question? Um, let's do, yeah, let's do one more. I got one on there's the one in YouTube about the Balkans. Sorry, Ross, do you have one as well? Oh, we'll take two more then. We'll do your, the Balkans one first. Do you want to read that one out? Sure. It just says uh, Balkans. There's always something going on there, like new proposed borders that some leaders are pushing, etc. So I guess just looking for an update on on the Balkans in general. Um, and I mean, I guess a lot of that is uh, is what we talked about, <clears throat> uh, just going on like the stuff we talked about in Eastern Europe, sort of writ large, but I don't know if there's anything specific that you want to touch on. You guys go first. I, I mean, I haven't seen anything personally, so... I'm very ignorant when it comes to the daily goings of the Balkans situation. So, Andrew, take it. I mean, my guess is it's like what we've covered already. Um, I don't think... I haven't seen anything uh, you know, new, new come out. Um, oh, I guess one interesting thing, it seems like Last year, um, Northern Macedonia became like the newest country to join, yeah, to join NATO, um, and it looks like now they're calling uh, for more sort of EU NATO presence in the Balkans. So, um, I think in general we might see just tensions flaring up between um, sort of the Russia axis and and the EU and NATO, um, in sort of yeah, just vying for the future of the region. Um, cause I think a lot of the decisions made today are going to have long-term effects, you know, um, on just power balance in the region. So I think that'll be interesting to follow. Um, yeah, there is always something going on in the Balkan. So <laughs> thank you for that question. Cool. Uh, next one is specifically, I'm going to dump this one on you guys as well. Uh, do you think, do you guys think a U.S. military intervention in Mexico is viable? It's basically a war zone, they say. In, uh, so what do you think? Um, I'm guessing it's like the drug cartel? Yeah, I assume, I assume that's what they're referring to. I mean, like... Um, a good question. It's a great question. I mean, if... Is it viable? Yes. Yeah. You Is know, there like... the political <clears throat> will and... Or support? Like, or support? Probably not. Yeah, I guess that's what you have to think about, right? Like, the U.S. probably has the you know enough firepower like the material constraints are are met you know to carry out something like that but would biden have support you know going into mexico with forces especially as we pull out of afghanistan probably not you know um, would mexico allow the u.s to just come in 
Um, also, probably not, even if it was against the cartel. Um, they probably Although, what if, we, met. what if we took all the police that are currently fighting the war, war on drugs and sent them to actually fight the war on drugs <laughs> in Mexico and like all the South police America. from the U.S. or like the <laughs> in Mexico? Yeah, no, from the U.S. who are currently tasked on doing the war on drugs. You know, let's put them in the actual this is war. Not what they signed up for. <laughs> um, no. It's a good question. I mean, I am very curious about, you know, what the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico is going to look like um, over the next, like, 10 years, because I think uh, there's a lot of areas where cooperation could benefit both countries, but there's also a lot of areas of tension that I could see flaring up. Um, so, I mean, maybe there will be some, some cross-border uh, sort of scuffles, you know, in the near future. The stuff we've talked about is any sort of omen of what's to come, it seems, you know, potentially likely. I would, I would think potentially as long as there was also going to be like a large amount of humanitarian aid and development to accompany it, um, right? Because there's one thing of fighting the drug cartels, but if there's not like, you're not creating some sort of better economic reality out there, like it's not going to be all that effective. Um, and so if it's part of like a larger effort to like stabilize you know, first Mexico as being the closest to the U.S. border and then, you know, working your, your way down through the continent. I think, yes, but if it's, like, just, like, let's do a military operation, I think that would end up Maybe being, not. like, that would that would probably make things worse when all things were said and done. But if it was done, like, consciously with, like, in true partnership with the actual government stakeholders that are, you know, that would be involved, plus with like a humanitarian aid and development program, then, you know, I, I think, yeah, it could, could be effective and would probably be a wiser deployment of the military than a lot of other deployments that have been done. Um, you know, like you can't like, if you want to solve the border crisis in, in some ways that you have to solve the underlying conditions there. And, you know, one of that might end up being the U S military in some way being deployed to solve the, the actual drug uh, war, not the, not the users, but the production and the cartels. Unlike and all Duterte, that. Duterte goes against the users as well. Yeah, you don't want to go for the going for the users is is cruel, and it's just like not where you stop the the pro. You're literally getting it at the end of the whole process. Yeah, it just doesn't make logical sense. All right. Um, anything else you guys want to talk about? I think. Do we have like a slightly happier geopolitical? I mean, we just talked about like invading countries and drug wars. Is there a anyone have a happy geopolitics question in in the chat? A happy note to end on. I mean, as 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 happy as the twenty twenty uh, geopolitical decade can be. I can't think of anything. <laughs> not much. Not much from me. Any expectations for the Olympics, the Tokyo Olympics? That's oh. geopolitics enough. Yeah, we'll take that. Uh, I don't know. I <laughs> I don't know what will happen. I I, I don't know enough about it. Uh, will they cancel it, it? Do you is think? Is it winter or which which, which one is it? I think it's summer. Okay. So is that when they have gymnastics? Because that's what my mom likes. I think so. Yeah, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Where they it... have soccer, the U.S. would have been playing if we had qualified, but unfortunately, oh. uh, wait, we didn't qualify we for the Olympics. It was like Soccer. our second or third straight year, yeah. Wait, you just qualified? Cycle. I thought everyone gets to play in the Olympics. Full no, point. you got to qualify. Just Olympic trials for a reason. Oh, yeah. Qualify. 
Yeah, we Wait, what about it. like the women's so- football soccer team? They had I'm to make not, it, right? I would imagine the U.S. women's qualified for the Olympics. Yeah, cause they're they're like actually like good. They're quite good. Yeah, they won the world World Cup. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. So we, I think we've hit an hour and sort of forty-five minutes. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's perfect. Perfect this for me, a... for you guys. So, any yeah, any last thoughts? A... No, other than this was a great uh, inaugural inaugural episode of this week in geopolitics. Maybe and, uh, we'll questions. see everyone next week. Yeah, we had some great questions. So think about your questions for next week uh, as as you all you know read the geopolitics news. If you come up with questions you know write them down and tune in for next week yeah and send them through you can send them through in advance either you know ar global security or global guessing and we'll make sure to get to them next week yeah i'll say um patreon patrons of my channel as well um they can submit questions directly to me so that's pretty cool perk if you want to join on patreon but yeah any anything else from you guys or i'll sort of do the standard subscribe da 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 so standards yeah perfect all right guys um oh that's my what's out there i didn't even realize that was still on but yeah um subscribe to global guessing i think i've pinned a comment in the chat so make sure you guys go over there for those that are watching later as well uh, i'll try and pin that in see if that will stick on the youtube um thanks for watching this first sort of very gung-ho um not very tech savvy from me first episode of the this week in geopolitics podcast um yeah, I've enjoyed it. It's been a good first one. I'm trying to think of other things to say. Yeah, subscribe to Global Guessing. If you can, um, you just head over to my Patreon. Take a look if you want to see about that and submit questions for this. Uh, those watching on TikTok as well uh, will be on sort of the same time as we... Well, we started about 7, didn't we, here in the UK? So I don't know what... Uh, 7.30. Yeah, so I don't know what time... Yeah, that was all the technical stuff, so wasn't there? So it'll be uh, 7.30 UK time, 2.30 Eastern yeah. is when we'll be live next week. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks to Andrew and Clay um, for coming on as well. Um, and um, make sure if you guys are subscribed to Ross here at AR Global Security on YouTube, hit that notification bell yeah. so that you get email notifications when the This Week in Geopolitics episode comes out and when This Week in Geopolitics, the podcast, comes out next week as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, by the way, I don't think I actually said my name to most of my viewers who probably actually have never seen my face before. It's on YouTube. I'm Ross. Um, I'm the, the the sort of founder of AL Global Security, if you want to call it that. That's my channel. So, yeah. Founder and CEO. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for watching. Cool. All right, guys. See you next week.